a lot of the things I write or most of the things I write, they're things that I need to hear myself in my own life. They're problems that I've gone through and that I'm trying to kind of work through. And I just see it as these are problems I'm trying to work through in a very public venue, presented in a way that other people can gain some value out of it. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Today's guest on the show is actually one of my favorite writers, and his name is Mark Manson. I'm sure many of you know him from his blog, markmanson.net, which over the years has tackled subjects from the dark side of traveling while working, dealing with anxiety, to toxic relationships. But, and this is some big news, recently Mark took the decision to sign with HarperCollins, which is a famous book publisher, to write his first traditionally published book titled The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F***, which is about to come out. Mark's going to be reading a few extracts from the book on this show, as well as talking about how he got into blogging, the type of internet commenters who drive him crazy, and why he's evolved from writing about failed relationships to failed states like Brazil. I may or may not be exaggerating a little there. So I think it's fair to say that this is going to be a pretty wide-ranging show if you stick around for the ride, and I highly encourage that you do. So we started this conversation by talking about some of the pioneers of blogging as we see it. You know, of course, Mark is one of the most famous examples on the internet of someone who's made a career for themselves as a blogger. But we try to talk about some of those pioneers, people like Bill Simmons, whose blog about Boston sports got him a job at ESPN and eventually now a TV show on HBO. We also talk about Steve Pavlina, somebody that's received millions of visitors from all around the world by writing about his personal development journeys. And we also touch on other characters like Andrew Sullivan, whose political blog, The Daily Dish, was one of those early bloggers that inspired Mark. I mean, obviously I was in the sports, but Simmons, especially early day Simmons, reading him, it was like having a buddy on the couch with you watching the game it was awesome like he made the same kind of jokes that you know a bunch of dudes sitting around make and had the same thoughts and ideas like he didn't get sucked into all the kind of the hit pieces and the babble that goes on on cable tv and he wrote constantly my god like he put out three thousand five thousand word pieces like three times a week back then i used to wake up every day and like go check page two that was a big thing do you remember like how that reading habit evolved online at what point did it become actual bloggers that you were reading? I think it was probably around 06 or 07. I started to really get into self-help stuff around that time. Like I was finishing up school. I just had like a nasty breakup. You know, I was one of those guys that would read like 50 ways to achieve your goals and practice all this stuff and try to do it all. And Steve Pavlina was an early one that I found. I guess the reason I wanted to talk about this a little bit is I've been thinking about like how important these things were to me at the time, these little bloglets and then later on blogs. 
the level of access you had to just individuals wrote stories like nobody would have written a book about Steve Pavlina. You know what I mean? Because all he did was like start a game company. But starting a game company that helps you to quit your job and like become a writer and do all these things would have been a dream life to me that I would have never really had heard about if it weren't for the blog. You kind of mentioned that like there's some inflection point around 06, 07. I think at some point blogs became cool because I remember before that time I would find random people and I kind of wouldn't think much of it. I would just read some content and then go about my life. But then it was like suddenly in like 07, there was like this awareness bloomed about a personal brand, like wanting to actually follow Steve Pavlina or Bill Simmons or Andrew Sullivan and stick with them regardless of where they went or what they did. And it was around the same time, too, that I think Blogspot started blowing up, WordPress started blowing up. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention is like, I think there's a technology aspect to this too. It became easier, right? Like you didn't have to be a nerdy computer science guy that knew how to operate the internet. It's like, well, all I had to do is download Blogger or get on WordPress. Yeah, like my first blog was on Blogspot. And the whole reason I got on was because my two roommates had Blogspot blogs and they thought it was like the coolest thing they had ever done. And so they were like constantly bugging me to get on Blogspot. That kind of social pressure, I don't think really existed before or since. Probably the first year that I ever blogged, it was just like a little personal blog spot blog that maybe 10 people read at most. And did you have ambitions at that point? Or was this just like, oh, my circle of friends reads it? Oh, no. And in fact, I started my first business completely like oblivious to the idea that blogging could ever even be a thing. It wasn't until years later that I actually started kind of taking it seriously. And what was the first business? I started a dating advice affiliate business. And at the time, were you writing about dating advice or were the two disconnected? No, they were pretty disconnected. One day I was on my bike and like a car kind of hit me. So I wrote about that. So at what point are you like, holy cannoli, I can actually turn this into something? What happened was I was trying to start a number of like online businesses and info product businesses, affiliate marketing businesses, failing at most of them. And and I was watching a lot of like marketing seminars, signing up for email lists and stuff. And then it was around 2009, I think, that like the big rage in the marketing world was you have to start a blog. If you're going to have an online business doesn't matter what you sell or what you do, you have to have a blog. If I want to get on Google search results and if I want to generate more traffic, I should be blogging for my businesses. And that's when I started trying to blog for my businesses. And that's when the dating advice stuff started. When I started like consistently and consciously writing a dating advice blog. Did you miss writing about your bicycle accidents? (laughs) No, I mean, the personal blogging stuff, I always thought was kind of silly. And I never really took seriously. And I don't miss the personal stuff. Even today, I don't feel this like overwhelming urge to get on and like write about my breakfast or whatever. You don't write much about like your personal experiences, it seems. These days, no. Why do you think that is, though, Mark? Why do you think you're not writing so much about your personal experiences? I think there's a few reasons. One is back when it was primarily like dating and relationship advice, I think people are a lot more interested in personal stories, there's a lot more concreteness to it. So if I'm writing an article about, say, dealing with a breakup, I think it adds a lot for the reader if I talk about one of my breakups. Whereas if I'm writing an article about, say, just like pursuing happiness or something, it's such an abstract and general concept that's going to be so different for so many different people who are reading. It gets harder to like 
peg down a single event in my life that tons and tons of people are going to relate to. And on top of that, I think just as a general lesson I've learned over the years and something I've noticed is that I think less experienced bloggers, their first instinct is to write about themselves like all the damn time. And that's valuable. But like ultimately, you know, we all know that like the first rule of marketing or pretty much anything is you meet the reader where they are, not where you are. And so I've figured out over the years that the starting point should be, you know, what I think is going on in the reader's life or what the reader is feeling or what I want the reader to feel. If I can share something that supplements that, that's great. But like the primary focus shouldn't just be me. It should be the person who's reading. This reading's from The Subtle Art of Not Giving a f- Chapter 3, You Are Not So Special. The problem with my home life back then was not all the horrible things that were said or done. Rather, it was all the horrible things that needed to be said, but weren't. My family stonewalls the way Warren Buffett makes money, or Jenna Jameson f- were champions at it. The house could have been burning down around us, and it would have been met with, Oh no, everything's fine. Tad Warman here, perhaps. But really, everything's fine. When my parents got divorced, there were no broken dishes, no slammed doors, no screaming arguments about who f***ed whom. Once they had reassured my brother and me that it wasn't our fault, we had a Q&A session. Yes, you read that right, about the logistics of the new living arrangements. Not a tear was shed, not a voice was raised. The closest peak my brother and I got into our parents' unraveling emotional lives was hearing, nobody cheated on anybody. Oh, that's nice. It's a tad warm in the room, but really, everything's fine. So how did it feel writing about that, given your family was not so willing to bring issues like this out in the open? (laughs) Well, I can tell you right now, my parents are probably going to be freaked out when they see it. So they don't know that you've written this? No. So let me just put it this way. There's nothing in here that I haven't talked about my parents with as an adult. You know, it's like if you ask my mom and my dad today, like, you know, what was some of the problems before you guys got divorced, like they would both say pretty much everything that's in here, you know, that there wasn't enough communication and they weren't good at dealing with issues together and they weren't good at expressing their feelings well. And so like none of this is new. I'm curious, like a lot of your writing is about relationships. So how does that work when you get in a miscommunication in your relationship? Like, does that get thrown around as currency ever? With my fiance now? No. And that's one of the reasons why I'm with her. You know, I'm not held to this like lofty standard. Here's the thing about relationship stuff. And I think it gets misconstrued as like a skill. It's like getting good at tennis or something. You know, it's like, oh, you missed the ball. I thought you were good at tennis. You know, it's like, oh, we had a fight. I thought you were good at relationships. I think being quote unquote good at relationships is really just being good at handling your emotions and good at kind of accepting the flaws and the emotions of the person you're with. So yeah, I still have problems in my relationships like problems are always going to exist there's nobody that can just magically solve all their problems really it's just the question is how good are you at like sustaining your problems or dealing with them there is this fantasy in our culture and one that you talk about a little bit that you know relationships are supposed to make you happy and so that if all of a sudden you're the same person you know you were it could be easy to bring out the frustration that you would have felt even if you were not with that person onto that person and then blame them 
totally. And I talk about later in the book that I have a chapter called The Importance of Saying No. It's basically all about not blaming and shaming the people in your life for your own negative feelings. So it's like, if you get butthurt about something, it's okay to like tell your partner, like, hey, I'm really upset about this. But it's not okay to be like, it's your fault. I'm upset about this. You need to change it. You know, as soon as that responsibility is shifted, that's when everything kind of goes to hell. How often do you worry about your advice or suffer a crisis of conscience? Because a lot of what your blog articles are about is you're giving people advice. And one of the things I've noticed is that I've gotten less confident the longer I've been running a business. So how do you deal with that? Why do you think you can give people advice? This bothered me for a while too. It's funny. I think it's just part of life is like the more you learn and the more you understand about something, the more you realize you don't know, like the more you realize that so many things are outside of your control. It's usually the people who are like very inexperienced who are like absolutely 100% certain about situations and, you know, whether it's business or relationships or whatever. I mean, it's always been a concern for me, but it particularly became a concern for me when, when the readership started to blow up and I started to get all sorts of people from different walks of life, you know, people with divorces and dealing with kids who weren't talking to them or people who were incredibly depressed or had mental health issues. And obviously, I'm not technically I'm not qualified to deal with a lot of these issues. What I make very clear to people, both on my site and also through correspondence, is that I don't have the answers. And this is something I feel pretty strongly about. Like one thing I really don't like about the self-help industry is this whole guru model of like a guy stands up on stage, gives you the answers. And if you just do what he says, then everything's going to be great. I think that's like a very ethically prickly situation. Like a lot of the things I write or most of the things I write, they're things that I need to hear myself in my own life. They're problems that I've gone through and that I'm trying to kind of work through. And I just see it as... These are problems I'm trying to work through in a very public venue, presented in a way that other people can gain some value out of it. But honestly, like I've definitely, as the years go on, I take fewer and fewer concrete stances on things. And a lot of times I get tons of emails of people who are like, they send two paragraphs saying like, this is my problem. What do I do? And I always make it clear, like, I have no idea. I don't know you. I don't know this other person. I don't know your situation. I don't know your personality. Like, I'm definitely not an expert in this situation. But here's an idea that maybe you can explore. This is one of my favorite sections of the book. I really, really like this. The Misadventures of Disappointment Panda. If I could invent a superhero, I would invent one called Disappointment Panda. He'd wear a cheesy eye mask and a shirt with a giant capital T on it that was way too small for his big panda belly. And his superpower would be to tell people harsh truths about themselves that they needed to hear but didn't want to accept. He would go door to door like a Bible salesman and ring doorbells and say things like, sure, making a lot of money makes you feel good, but it won't make your kids love you. Or if you have to ask yourself if you trust your wife, then you probably don't. Or what you consider friendship is really just your constant attempts to impress people. Then he'd tell the homeowner to have a nice day and saunter on down to the next house. It would be awesome. It's sick and sad and uplifting and necessary. After all, the greatest truths in life are usually the most unpleasant to hear. Why have we become a bunch of entitled, spoiled? What's going on there? I allude to this in a few different chapters, and I actually talk about it quite a bit on my blog the last year. 
I think one side effect of just this overflow of information and the fact that like Google and Facebook have gotten so scary and serving you exactly what you want to see. I think that there are psychological repercussions for this. I think people, we kind of envelope ourselves in these little bubbles where we see a lot of what we want to see, or we basically just see things that confirm how we already feel. I think this has created a little bit of a crisis of meaning in our lives. And that, that's why this book is essentially, this book is about values, which surprises a lot of people. But it's all about like personal values and like finding your personal values and getting back to them and shutting out everything else. That's what we need because the world is just so noisy these days and there's so much distraction and there's so much kind of just like false pursuit of things that that's what we need. When you decide what you're going to write and how you're going to attack a problem, you said you relate a lot of times to your personal development and things that are going on in your life. And I was fortunate enough the other day to have dinner with you in New York at your wonderful apartment with your wonderful fiance. And the only complaint I heard was that you leave whiskers in the sink every once in a while. (laughs) It seems like you've got things pretty much nailed down and going well. So how do you find inspiration to write about some of these difficult topics? This is something that's been pretty pertinent in my business lately. One of the reasons I got away from just dating and relationship advice and started writing about kind of general self personal development is I wrote a book on dating. And then as soon as I kind of finished that, I was like, all right, I have nothing else to say. Like it felt like, at least for myself, I'd kind of figured things out. Everything I wanted to say was written. So I need to push off in the new territory, like find new questions that I feel need to be answered in my own life. And it's funny, I feel like I'm kind of reaching that same point with the self development stuff. You know, like you said, like I'm very happy with my professional situation. I'm happy with my business. I'm happy with my relationship. Just moved to New York, have like a really cool life here. And then I just finished this book and I've got probably three years of articles to fall back on where it's like, I kind of feel like I don't have a whole lot new to say in that area. Like, you know, if if somebody wants me to write an article on happiness, well, I already wrote like three or four on it. And if you want an article on motivation, well, I already wrote a few on that. And there's a whole section in the book on it. So part of the problem with this type of material is that it's not, the nice thing about it is that it's evergreen. So if I write a kick-ass article in 2013 about relationships, it's still just as valuable three years later, five years later, eight years later. But the problem is, is that like, I can't just repeat the same thing over and over. I got to find something new. And so these days I'm trying to kind of branch out more and look more at like kind of culture, current events, dabbling a little bit in politics, but mainly looking at how a lot of these psychological concepts that I've been writing about for years manifest themselves in kind of like the public realm. Because you're right. It's like at this point, I've been writing about, you know, finding a happy relationship or a healthy relationship for like six years. And it, my choices at this point is like either repeat myself over and over again or find some new angle or new take or new subject. You're a guy behind a keyboard that types up some stuff, hits publish, and like tens of thousands of people are engaged with your ideas and your words. In many cases, instantly. And over years, it's millions. How did you get there? Like when you look back on it, what do you think it takes to get to that level? Oh man. In the old days, it was kind of a linear thing. It was kind of one new reader at a time. Social media completely changed that, in particular Facebook, I think 
around 2011, 2012, when they modified their algorithm to like show a lot more publications, then it became exponential. I think if you were to track my readership and my following, it would be a pretty steady rise up until around that period, probably like 2012, 2013. And then it just kind of like shot through the roof. And then it's been about that level ever since. In terms of kind of the second question, like being conscious of i guess you'd say like the acquisition of new followers or you know being this mastermind who's like oh this is how i'm gonna get new readers maybe the difference between me and a lot of other people is i've always been very concerned with building the readership and exposing my work to new people and generating a bigger following like it's always in the front of my mind and something that i'm working on i think it's just i do it in such a way that it's not obvious or like let's just put it this way me personally when i read other blogs or other websites i don't like reading sites that they're kind of like a hard sell like please follow me please do this if you like this article give me your email and i'll like send you a 120 hour course on blah 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 you know for me it's like i'm just here to read good stuff and if you have good stuff, then I'll come back. That whole kind of in-your-face mechanic is a turnoff for me. And I think one of the big problems with like internet business in general is that a lot of these ideas that work in the direct marketing space, people who are in blogging or in podcasting or in publishing, they just kind of pull those tactics over as if it was going to work everywhere. And the truth is, is that like if I'm looking to like buy like a supplement or something, yeah, like you need to do hard sales. But if I'm just trying to like read about sports or read about politics or read about relationships, then it becomes an interference and it gets in the way of building that relationship with people. One of the things that's striking about your blog is how good the writing is. And I think a lot of people blame blogs for a decline in writing quality and things like grammar, fact checking and all this. And how important do you think that stuff is if someone's going to take a stab at growing their audience? I think it's monumentally important. I think it gets underrated. I mean, honestly, Dan, like the best thing, I tweeted this out a couple of years ago and it's probably like the most retweeted thing I ever said. It's so true. Like the best thing about the internet is that anybody can get on and say something and be heard. The worst thing about the internet is that anybody can get on and say something and be heard. Like <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. Like the fact that anybody can just open up a WordPress and start publishing things is like, it's great. It's amazing. It's like a huge leap for humanity. But at the same time, it brings the average quality down quite a bit because most people, they don't spend a lot of time focused on writing. And ultimately, like before anything else, before design, before value proposition, before your cute little email pop up, before any of that stuff, the dominant experience on any blog or any site like that is it's a reading experience. And so if you don't take the writing seriously, if you don't work on it consistently as a craft, yeah, you're just limiting yourself. And I get asked this question a lot. And like I tell people, if you're an okay writer, but you have a good piece of content, like that will do great once. But if you're an amazing writer, then it kind of it almost doesn't even matter what you write about. People will find it. People will be drawn to it and attracted to it. This idea of like amazing writing is so opaque, you know, certainly if you were to Google it, amazing writing blogs, you'd probably get a bunch of listicles by people with opt-in boxes and telling you blogging tips and stuff. It's kind of a hard nut to crack. You know, I'm curious as to what that means to you or like how you would interpret that to others. Like, what's it mean to be an amazing writer? I think it's hard because it's there's such an artistic element to it. It's like the difference between hearing a good band and an amazing band. 
like the good band, like they're still technically playing the right notes and the song sounds good and they're playing together and it's enjoyable to have them in the background. As long as you keep it down, it's okay to have them playing while you're eating your spaghetti or whatever. Right. And then you just forget about them like 30 minutes later. Like a great band is something that just it's a completely unique experience. And it's a very subtle difference. It's like 10 percent that makes 90 percent of the difference. I think developing that it takes years and years. Can I ask a follow up on that? I just want to know how long it takes you to write an article. It varies quite a bit anywhere from and I'm just going to say like to get a solid draft done because, you know, there's all sorts of like editing and finding images and formatting and stuff that we're not going to count that just to get like a really solid draft done that I'm happy with. I would say anywhere from on the low end, like 30 minutes that if it just like I have like one of these Moses experiences where I'm speaking tongues and everything comes out to on the very long end, I would say 10, 12 hours, 15 hours. And the interesting thing I've noticed over the years is that the longer it takes me to get to that point where I have a good draft that I'm happy with, usually the worse the article is. Now, it's not true in every case because sometimes articles require, they get kind of technical and they require a lot of research and you have to get like very fine, like be very careful with like how you're wording things and things like that. But in general, usually if I can't knock it out in the first three or four hours, well, let's put it this way. The best articles I knock out in probably like three to four hours or less. Seven years ago, all the gurus are saying you got to start a blog. Well, you did it and it worked. Do you think it's a grimmer prospect nowadays? It's definitely much harder these days. It's much more crowded. Things are consolidating these days. So being a big independent blog like myself, we're kind of becoming a little bit of a dying breed. All the smaller bloggers have like migrated on the platforms like Medium or they're writing for HuffPost or something like that. And then a lot of the bigger ones, they just they either lose their traction over the course of years or they just retire like Sullivan or Bill Simmons. They go off to TV. It's not the wild, wild west like it was back in 2009. Like there's still opportunity, but it's a genuinely like saturated and competitive market these days, I think. Speaking of Sullivan, you made a really bold move for an independent blogger. And I don't know if I've ever seen any independent blogger do it besides him. Off the top of my head, you put a subscription on your website asking your readers if they've read five or six articles that they need to subscribe in order to read more. What were you thinking? What motivated you? I mean, you were doing so well with selling courses on your site and selling books and things. Why bother with the subscription model? Well, one is that I don't see the courses or just info products in general. I mean, books is another thing, but selling online courses, I don't see that as necessarily being something I want to do over the long term. I also don't know if it's going to be totally viable over the long term. So when I look out like 10 years from now, and I asked myself, like, do I still want to be like selling a course on anxiety or whatever? You know, I would just prefer to write. I'd prefer to like write books and write articles and publish my stuff. I want that to be my 100% focus. The other issue was that I had this huge, huge audience of, you know, anywhere from one to two million people each month. And less than 1% of them were even interested in the courses, you know, so we would email them, we would put stuff on the site, do offers and stuff. And it's just people didn't care. It's like people are there for the articles. And I hit a problem in my business, which was I was making money off these courses, which less than 1% of my readers were interested in, but they were giving me money. So I had to give them time and attention. But it's like 
99.5% of the people who come to my site just want to read an article. So I should be spending my time writing articles. So I felt this like tension in between like where I dedicated my attention. And so to me, the resolution of that was like, well, the answer is to just find a way to monetize the blog itself. Because if I can just find a way that like people would just pay me to write stuff, then I'll be happy. And you know what? Like, even if I don't, if I need to take a pay cut for a year or two, like, it's worth it because this is a business model that it, I see being sustainable over the long term and keeping me happy and keeping my attention focused on one thing. I started experimenting with that in May. We've already gone through a few iterations of that. The paywall was turned off. It didn't bomb, but it didn't do super well either. But now we're experimenting with kind of like other forms of figuring that out. And it's going pretty well. Like we're finding that people are generally like if you find the right price and the right offer of content, there's a number of people out there who are more than happy to give a few bucks to get extra access. You're doing well. You got a lot of people coming to this side of yours. So why do you sign a book contract with the man? <laughs> Why'd you do that? Why won't you make your book, put a price tag on it and light a cigar in celebration? I mean, your email list is huge. You got so many people coming to your site. Obviously, you could sell a boatload of these books. So why are you going to give so many of the profits to a giant company in New York City to help pay for all their expensive staff? Why am I giving in to the man? Well, you know, I went back and forth on this for months. And actually, as you know, I originally planned to self-publish this book when I started writing it. Ultimately, the argument that convinced me not to, I ended up, I talked to a number of agents and I talked to a few people within the industry, the publishing industry. And the argument that convinced me not to self-publish this book was somebody asked me, he said, how many people outside of, so my whole domain where I was getting all my readers was primarily like social media users, younger people, tech savvy people. And so this guy asked, he said, how many people outside of your home-based demographic that you've already built, how many people outside of it do you think would enjoy your message? So how many people who are not on Facebook very often or people who are not very tech savvy? And I said, I think a lot. And actually, that's kind of, I felt like I kind of hit a ceiling in terms of the amount of people I could be exposed to through social media or through the ways I became popular. And and I had no way of accessing those outer demographics, you know, those the soccer moms and old grandfathers and stuff who would probably enjoy some of the stuff that I've written. And so when I told the guy, I said, I think there's a lot of people who aren't exposed to my work who would enjoy it. The guy was like, OK, you should sign a deal because Harper is going to be able to. Well, I didn't know I was going to be with Harper at that point, but he said that like a publisher is going to be able to find those people. They're going to be able to like get you in the magazines that these people look at or get you on stage somewhere. Or even just the credibility of being with a publisher is going to get you attention, get the book reviewed in newspapers that would otherwise never pay attention to it. Once I saw it in those terms of like, okay, I give up a pretty large percentage of the royalties for the opportunity to be exposed to a much wider audience and to a non-internet audience. I saw it as kind of a worthwhile proposition. One thing I kind of noticed, like the more I work with Harper and, and I have to say like so far, at least it's been nothing but a good experience with them. I think it, a lot of us internet business guys, like we get a little bit kind of caught up in this bubble where you know, everything's happening on the internet and everything's happening with technology and this is where all the new stuff is happening and, and we're on the forefront of everything. And so we kind of get caught up in the idea that this is all that matters. And there's a whole world of people who just are completely ignorant to this type of stuff who 
still want relationship advice or still want happiness advice or whatever. So far, I am very happy with the decision. So as a sort of conclusion, I'm going to jump in here and let Mark read and talk about an example of why you should both read his blog and his book. This is from one of my favorite posts on his blog and one that shows the newish territory he's increasingly moving into. Taking his style that was honed on topics like personal development and relationships and applying them to a country that is becoming increasingly significant in his life. I lived in Brazil on and off for about two and a half years. I had just gotten engaged with my girlfriend who's Brazilian. So I was basically, I was going to marry a Brazilian. I just finished another six month stretch there and I was moving back to the United States. And that six month stretch was very frustrating in a lot of ways. And one of them was just that the country is just like in the toilet at the time. It's a little better now when we're recording this, but end of 2015, beginning of 2016, like it was at a real low point. The economy was a total mess. There's political scandals all over the place, a healthcare crisis, huge like financial problems going on, a lot of crime. Everybody in Brazil was like unhappy, but at the same time, I was living here and I would see on literally a daily basis, you know, everything from the barista at the coffee shop to the repairman that's supposed to fix your TV to the guy at, at the gym. Like people were just behaving really like untrustworthy, shitty ways. And I think that living there that last time, it showed me it's not a coincidence that Brazil is always having these problems. Like there is a cultural cause effect relationship with this stuff. And, it, and it's not just that like, oh, they have all the corrupt politicians. It's like, no, it's the exact same mindsets that cause people to be two hours late for dinner and cause like the guy at the grocery store to steal $3 from you. It's the exact same thing that causes the government to like botch like construction projects and steal billions from the state-run oil company. And I was concerned because it's like, my kid is going to be half Brazilian. My wife is Brazilian. I'm joining a Brazilian family. This country is going to be part of my life for the rest of my life. And I just had a lot to say. So if you wouldn't mind reading from in the past. In the past, I've had theoretical conversations about systems of government, colonial histories, economic policies, and so on. These are clearly some valid explanations for the problems. But lately, I've come to another conclusion a conclusion that many people would probably find offensive. But upon mentioning it to a few of my Brazilian friends, they urged me to write about it and share it. So here it is. It's you. You are the problem. Yes, you reading this. You are the problem. I'm sure you don't mean to be, but you are actively participating in the problem and perpetuating it every day. Okay, how did Brazilians react to this? It was very hot and cold. <laughs> a few hundred thousand Brazilians loved it and... A few hundred thousand Brazilians absolutely hated it and thought I was just another arrogant American. But yeah, I mean, a lot loved it. There's nothing in this article that I did not talk to a Brazilian friend about. In fact, most of the points I make in this article were actually points that my Brazilian friends made first to me. And so when I mentioned the idea of like writing this to a few of them, they were like, please, like nobody is saying this. Like somebody needs to say it. You were the superhero in this sense. You were the panda. I'm Disappointment Panda, yes. <laughs> and it's not dissimilar from really the message that you have for our society, which is that we're in a cycle of denial and victim mentality. Without giving away too much of the book, if you're in denial, how do you know you're in denial? 
the way the book is divided up is like the first half of the book essentially like describes the problem and you know what's going on with people and then the second half of the book is kind of like the prescriptive part each chapter kind of represents like chapters five through nine each kind of represent a step chapter five is called you are always choosing and that chapter basically prescribes taking responsibility for like every problem in your life regardless if you're to blame for it or not and then actually the issue with denial and chapter six is called you're wrong about everything but so am i and that the whole chapter is it's kind of this like old school skeptic thing of like just basically like constantly proposing to yourself that your assumptions are incorrect and like asking what would that mean if they were incorrect over and over again. And I point out in that chapter that often it's like, same thing with the disappointment panda thing. It's like, if you propose to yourself that you're wrong about one of your assumptions and you like notice you have a big emotional reaction to that idea, like you start like, that's impossible. I would never be like that. The bigger the emotional reaction, the more likely it is that it's true and that you are avoiding it or just like repressing it in some way. I love that. I mean, I was thinking about that when you were writing about people freaking out about Facebook posts. And this just entitlement attitude, like we're so entitled to our emotions that we can just freak out about this stuff. And it's like, well, you probably don't have anything else going on. It's definitely an inspiration for this book was, I mean, one experience I've had with the blog blowing up so big the last few years is now that I have, you know, 100 times the readers, you get 100 times the hate mail. And so just seeing some of the reactions of things I write, like sometimes it's just, it gets absolutely absurd. Just to give an example, I wrote an article last year that was pretty popular. And in the middle of the article, I had a video of, it was like one of these like humans are amazing videos, you know, like people jumping off cliffs and like driving motorcycles off buildings and stuff like that. And I just used the video to like kind of make a silly point in the article. And I got hate mail from a woman who said that the video that I posted in my article was disproportionately featured men doing amazing things and not enough women. And she implied that I was sexist or like insinuating that women can't do amazing things too. I'm reading this. I'm just like, and you could tell she was angry. She was like legitimately angry about this. And I just, it's like, how, what kind of person? Like how, how how does this happen? Like I get like the feminist issues that are going on in our society, but like, how is this the fight that you decide to pick? Like out of all the shit that's happening, out of like women who like can't even leave their house in the Middle East and like the sex trade and everything, like, This is the fight you want to pick. That reading was from Mark Manson's An Open Letter to Brazil. If you want to check out all the links brought up in this episode, plus see the show notes, you can check them out at tropicalmba.com slash the subtle art. You know, I think one of the reasons that Mark's blog is so insanely popular. And if you see how many people share his posts, I think it's because he's willing to say some of the things that we all think, but aren't willing to go to bat publicly for. And he not only does it in a way that's thought provoking and elegant, but he does it with a tremendous amount of professionalism. You know, and I think blogging often gets derided for being amateurish or self-promotional or whatever you want to say about it, you can pretty much. But that's also the magic of it is that someone like Mark takes 
incredible level of professionalism to it. He learned from the best. He watched them operate, put a tremendous amount of work in, and look where it got him. He makes a living off of his writing, and he's able to focus on it full-time, and he's recently put out a book with a major publisher, which I highly recommend. We'll link to that and everything mentioned in this episode, and also we'll be in the comments at tropicalmba.com slash thesubtleart. We'll see you next Thursday morning. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.